We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Hi, and welcome back to We Saved You a Seat podcast by Oklahoma Family Network. We're continuing our conversation with Heather Ashwood and Megan Smith regarding their children, Aiden and Abigail, who have cystic fibrosis. If you've not had a chance to listen to their uh, birth story, I would highly encourage you to go listen to the podcast just previous to this one, as it will introduce you to uh, delivery through the diagnosis and through just trying to figure out what life is going to look like having a child with cystic fibrosis. Now sit back and enjoy the conversation as it has already begun. Both of y'all have brought me to tears. (laughs) So, I mean, listening to both of you share your stories, um, I mean, clearly it, it, it has a lasting impact and both of you are um, paying it forward in unique ways and um, supporting other moms. And uh, even though y'all are still, um, I mean, Aiden's three and a half, you know, and so as, as a three and a half year old, you guys are still learning and still progressing and, and absorbing all the information. And, and we've talked about how our, you know, our moms come together, you know, our NICU moms sometimes come together and our families come together. Why don't one of you share a little bit about how can you guys come together? I mean, I know that with cystic fibrosis, there's a few things that can happen and can't happen. And so now that y'all are two moms that are living the cystic fibrosis world, can y'all go and have play dates? Well, cystic fibrosis is different in that the community has to operate differently. Because, um, you know, a long time ago, actually, they had camps for kids with cystic fibrosis where they would throw, you know, 25, 30 kids with, with CF together and they would do all the things. But we've since learned that actually it's really dangerous for people with cystic fibrosis to congregate because I guess let me precedence this by saying something that is dangerous to a person with cystic fibrosis that's not dangerous to the rest of us is um, different kind of bacteria around us that can um, take up residence in their lungs and cause these like really dangerous lung infections. And um, so our kids get tested and cultured for this. Like we do it every three months at our clinic. Some people do it every month. It just depends on your clinic and your care team. But Aiden and Abigail shouldn't hang out together because if Aiden picked up a bacteria or is culturing something in his lungs, he can give that to Abigail or vice versa. Or maybe... Um, Maybe there's something in Abigail's environment that Aiden hasn't been exposed to or vice versa that they can transfer to each other and it can actually make them really sick. So one of the great things about being part of this generation is that we, the world of technology is exploding around us. And so our kids will grow up knowing each other, but they'll be doing it virtually. They'll be doing it through the internet and FaceTime, or maybe someday they might meet through a window with one on each side. Um, 
as mamas, we can get together and as parents, um, it's safe for us to do that. So you'll see events for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, like um, our gala or fundraisers, that kind of thing, where parents and caregivers and family members gather, but there's usually only allowed to be one person with a cystic fibrosis diagnosis in attendance. Um, the exception to that is our Great Strides Walk where it's outdoors and we work really, really hard to make sure that everyone is at least six feet apart, which we all know about now, right? Having come through 2020, but before social distancing was a normal thing for the greater population, we were crushing it as CF parents, like rocking that social distancing and, um, so Abigail and Aiden might be able to sit across a park from each other and throw a ball or something, but they're never going to be the kind of friends that get to hug. So yeah, just a very different it's, experience. Yeah, I remember one of the first times after we got out of the NICU, we were talking and we actually had an appointment the same day with our doctor and I was like under any other circumstance it would be like hey let's go have grab a coffee yes. in between let the kids play like in between my appointment and y'all's appointment and hang out for a little bit but we can never do that with the kids because of this infection or you know this possible cross-contamination so I'll kind of expand on that so with cystic fibrosis, one of the main things is, is that the, their bodies cannot process mucus yes. like our bodies can. So there it's, it affects multiple facets of the body, but the main areas are the lungs and the GI tract. So their lungs produce mucus and it's thick and it's sticky and anything in the environment that it can grab onto and hold onto, it will. And it'll fester and it can cause infections very easily. So for us, while we could possibly get the exact same thing, we could cough it up no big deal. It's gone. For them, it just holds on. And it is like the perfect environment to cause huge infection. Mm -hmm. And so while Abigail could have be culturing something and it not necessarily be causing a problem for her, if she were to go and see Aiden and Aiden had never been exposed to this, while Abigail might be seemingly perfectly healthy and no problems. If she passed that to Aiden, it could cause havoc for Aiden, mm -hmm. like hospital stays, lung infections, which in turn causes lung damage. Yes. Which could possibly lead to lung transplants, which is a very real thing for CF people who have CF is, you know, the possibility of double lung transplants. So you really want to minimize that risk. And part of minimizing that risk is not coming in contact with somebody else who has cystic fibrosis. So like she said, 
2020 kind of introduced everybody to wearing a mask and social distancing, that's like an everyday thing for CF, the CF community, is masks and washing your hands and social distancing. Like after Abigail got out of the NICU, okay, quarantine, okay, welcome to 2020. Yes. We have been in quarantine since 2019 because Abigail got out of the NICU. She was out for a couple months and then we went straight into RSV and flu season. So we had to quarantine for RSV and flu season. So we couldn't take Abigail to restaurants, to church, to grocery stores. So we had to start quarantining. What was it? Like November? October. Remember, it was really early, actually. It was like September 15th, I feel like. You had been at a clinic and called me. And I remember thinking like, flu season lasted so long last year. I felt like we didn't, you know, take it, start taking Aiden out until late spring. And now it's starting so early in 2019 because like strep and um, RSV was running rampant. And, you know, a lot of, for, for all children, those things make them really sick and struggle. But um, for our children, that could mean major hospital stay. And as, as parents, we, I think Megan and I are pretty close on the same page as this, but it's a really hard decision. Like, how do you choose and find balance between what you want to do and what your kids want to do and how much they want to be out versus the things we know that are dangerous for them and choosing that line to making sure your kids are healthy. The longer that they stay healthy and the less lung infections they have, the longer you extend that timeline of the possibility of a lung transplant and the further away you push hospital visits. But also, the more you're inside and the more you're isolated and stuck away from the rest of the community, you want your child to be social and you want them to have playdates and friends and get to go to Walmart and pick out a Lego. You know what I mean? So um, I remember it being really early. It was like September yeah. 2019. And then just right around the time when we were like, oh, it's March. We can start like going to the zoo again without worrying about RSV and flu is when, you know, our world's kind of flipped over. And um, I always say though, that I believe that people with cystic fibrosis and families or caregivers of people with cystic fibrosis, like we are professional quarantiners. We are professional social distancers. We already had a cabinet full of hand sanitizer and masks. And we probably were already stocked up on whatever our favorite brand of disinfectant was. So, I mean, maybe we missed the stock up on the toilet paper thing, but everything else we already, we were like ready for that. Right. I mean, it was because I remember talking to you and I was like, after one of our clinic meetings and I was like, our doctor just said it's it's extended. Like we saw the light at the end of the tunnel and then COVID and it was like extended. And in between that, so Abigail actually did have another hospital stay. We decided as a family to keep Elijah in Mother's Day out. 
after Abby got out of the NICU because we felt that it was best for him to continue with some sort of normal routine. But before he could touch Abby or come around Abigail, he had to change his clothes and wash his hands after he left Mother's Day out. And even with all the precautions that we took, Eli came down with a little cold that lasted two to three days. Runny nose, little cough. Abigail got it. And I remember looking at Benjamin Christmas Day and I was like, her breathing's not normal. And I had watched videos on retractions and I just looked at her and I said, she's retracting. And we called Benjamin's sister because I always, I'm like, Nurse Hannah, I love you. I'm like, one day I will just call you as a sister, but today's not that day. Called her, FaceTimed her, and she's like, yeah, Meg, those, not what we really want to see. So Christmas Day, we took Abigail to the hospital. And we called because of the flu and RSV, not even COVID at that time, just flu and RSV. We were always told, call the emergency room, let them know you have a child with cystic fibrosis coming and that you want to check in, wait in the car or automatically get a private room. So you're not in the general population, which would increase her risk of exposure. So we called beforehand, let him know. We went straight back. That's when Abigail received her first breathing treatment. I mean, she wasn't even like six months, seven months. We were back in the hospital on high flow oxygen, all because a little cold for Elijah turned into an upper respiratory infection for Abigail. And that's all it took five days, high flow oxygen back in the hospital. And so that was, I think that was our first, like we had gotten into a normal routine of, all right, we are giving her her pancreatic enzymes. We don't have the breathing treatments yet, but like, all right, we're rocking this. We've got this. We're in our new normal groove. And then that hit. And it was like kind of a setback of, oh, this is really still a real thing we had made progress and then it felt like we took a step back and it kind of knocked us back into the reality of this is real. This is our life. This is stuff that we have to watch out for. That was kind of a hard thing. And then when she came out of the hospital, there was COVID. And so our quarantine has never stopped, you know, going on two years. Well, and I think you lightly touched on too, we take so for granted our daily routine and what we consider to be our normal. Um, but these like little beautiful tiny humans, uh, we work so hard at preventative care and there is so much involved with um, like being a parent or a caregiver to someone with cystic fibrosis or um, you know a teenager or a young adult with cystic fibrosis. I'm not sure that someone who didn't know what it was would realize um, our kids take, uh, they take pills. Uh, both Abigail and Aiden learned to swallow pills, like what they were about a year old and they were swallowing like. Yeah, Abby swallowed like her first full capsule at seven months. I mean, she wasn't even a year. 
Yeah. Because she just went on strike of taking her enzymes and applesauce. And we were like, well, you got to have them. So let's try this way. Um, and those are, they're, they're these um, pills. They're like about the size of an adult extra strength Tylenol, I think. And we're teaching our babies to swallow them. And um, every person with cystic fibrosis has, has a different experience. That's the other thing that makes this really unique is because Aiden and Abby had basically the same birth stories as far as like coming out and meconium ileus and diagnosis after surgery. And they're within two years of each other. And we have very different, we have some very much the same, but also some very different treatments for our kids, just because some people with cystic fibrosis struggle more with their lungs. Some struggle more with their GI tract. Some struggle more with their pancreas. So like a day for us as a CF parent uh, of toddlers, we have babies, right? And these, these treatments increase and grow exponentially as they get older, just preventative treatments when they're completely healthy. Um, we have oscillating vest. It's like a percussive chest therapy vest. And Megan and I both did this manually by hand with like a little cup and you had to like uh, clap it against your baby's chest and back to knock any mucus out of their lungs. Now that they're old enough, they have these vests that do it for them. Um, but that's a 30 minute treatment twice a day. It's not unusual for older kids to do it for an hour, two to three times a day. Um, our kids take pancreatic enzymes to help them digest and break down their food. Our bodies produce it naturally, but it's something that their bodies just don't do. So every time they eat anything that has fat or protein, they must take these pills in order to help with proper digestion. They take super doses of vitamins because their bodies don't naturally absorb these vitamins. Um, both Aiden and Abby are vitamin D deficient. So we started them on vitamin D. They take um, vitamin A, E, D, and K every day. They do nebulizer treatments for their lungs. For us right now, it's twice a day when he does his best. He has a 30-minute nebulizer in the morning and an hour of nebulizer at night. I think Abby's pretty similar. We just have a little bit different in our medication and doses. But what else am I missing? Oh, they take uh, antacid because reflux mm -hmm. is super normal for kids who have had meconium ileus, which I don't know about for Abby, but for Aiden, that caused projectile vomiting on numerous occasions, which lots of new parents are used to, right? But like between CF diapers and CF spitting up and then like all the things, it's a lot, y'all. It is a lot to get their little tiny bodies just regulated. And when yes. you think about you're doing all of that, which we have progressively added a little bit at a time, all of these medications, and we have toddlers. And so your day really revolves around making sure that you are doing all things and getting all the pills in and all. Also, CF kids will most people with cystic fibrosis, their bodies don't properly absorb calories either. I read that um, a lot of them only absorb about a third of the calories they ingest. So not only are you doing all of these things, but you're also trying to cram calories into your child. So uh, Megan and I have both struggled with our babies being underweight and not gaining weight, which failure to thrive. And then those words sometimes turn into things like 
feeding tubes. A lot of kids with CF later on end up getting feeding tubes to push the calories into. Our normal, our normal isn't wake up and play time and work and go to bed. Our entire way we shape our day and our week and leaving the house or going, like just to go to lunch somewhere to pack this, the syringes and the pills and the applesauce packets to feed the pills and all the things, it turns into a monumental undertaking. And this is preventative care when they're healthy. And so we talk about like, oh, our babies get sick and we have to go to the hospital, but the things we do to keep them out of there, just it's extraordinary to me how I never would have imagined giving my child a pill before they were like 12 and had a headache or something, you know? And yes, I like, mean, it's amazing how just resilient they are and how they adjust. And, and they, don't care. I, they don't care. It's just like, yeah. oh, I gotta take my pills before I eat my hot dog. Okay. I mean, Abby now. They have to, so they have to take medication before every meal then so that they can absorb the proper proteins and all yes. of that. Is that. So they have to take pancreatic enzymes pretty much before they eat anything. Like Abby can't just have a snack or she can't even go to the fridge and grab her milk yeah. without her enzymes. Like she has to have them before any of it. And so it's like, you see where like with Eli, I'd be like, okay, just go grab a snack, sweetie. Like, it's okay. With her, it's like, Eli, make sure you sit at the counter and that sissy does not get your snack because she has not gotten her enzymes. And so it's really, you have to be really conscious about it because if they don't get their enzymes, it could be a stomach ache for like days. Yes. And like throw off their whole digestive like system. And it, so it's not something that is just like, oh, well, she won't really absorb that meal. No, it's like stomach issues, like stomach cramps, because the enzymes break down the food so that her body can absorb it and process it. Not only get the nutrients that her body needs from it, but process it for her to like have a bowel movement. Mm -hmm. So... We have to, one way that we know if their enzymes are working is we actually have to look at their bowel movements. We have to see if they float or if they sink in the potty. That can tell us a lot if we need to increase or decrease. Think this is going to get a little like detailed. But think like pepperoni pizza grease, like if we see that in the diaper, that can mean that she's not getting enough enzymes. So like, I always imagined having a little boy, like I was going to talk about poop and like, it was going to be a joke. It is like whole nother level being a CF mom, it's like <laughs> you know, like it rules our life. We look at it. We talk about it. I have a picture still of Abigail's first one in the NICU. Like it is like it rules it, our life. Well, it and it's, 
never how, yeah. but how many times a day and has it been more than a certain number of hours because one of our fears especially after coming home with an infant who had had intestinal surgery was they at least told us you know this could happen again it could happen in the blink of an eye and the only way you're going to know is if you're paying attention to the diapers. Also, you know, anytime you have surgery on the gut, there's greater increase for scarring and like binding of scars and all the things. So I bet you probably for the first year and a half of his life, um, I charted his diapers in my planner. Because also we go to our clinic, right? In our care team, one of the questions they ask us every time is like, how many times did he does he poop a day? What does it look like? Because it's one of our greatest tools for understanding if our mm -hmm. children who can't communicate with us about these things yet, you know, Aiden might be able to tell me now, like his tummy hurts. Do you know how many reasons why see a person with CF could have a tummy ache? Uh, so first thing we take the temperature and ask him if he has to poop and then sit there and wait for him to do it so we can look in the toilet and see if we can use that as some kind of tool to figure out why his tummy is hurting and um but it, it's so funny because when they come home it's so overwhelming and you don't think you're ever going to be able to keep track of all of those things and it's so for us it's just so normal yeah I, I will say though every time we, we have clinic every three months where we see our um usually we see our respiratory um a respiratory attack and we usually see our dietitian and we usually see our pulmonologist and this whole team of people who are like amazing and awesome and make sure that our kids can feel healthy and strong all the time and um I just like it's it's just so I get so worked up about it which I shouldn't because it, these people they just love him and they care for him but every time I get so anxious like are we adding a new medication or are we changing our treatment or I just got used to this cycle of this and what's it going to be different and um you know financially some of these medications I mean they're brilliant amazing insurance and um like programs for people with cystic fibrosis that help pay for their medication like palmazine well, copay coverage you know yes. copay programs yes huge assistance but you also have to think every time you go like okay a new medication my child needs it let's do it okay now let's call the pharmacy and see how much this one is going to cost which I never would have thought about before until we started Palmazine I think it was is Palmazine the one that's like several thousand a month without the programs yes three thousand we took it to our local uh, local pharmacy, which is like small town pharmacy. And they're like, I'm sorry, we can't fill this. This is a specialty medication, but like it, it's like three, $4,000 a month. So that's the other thing, our medications. Like if you go on vacation, you cannot forget one. You cannot because you can't just like hop over to Walgreens and pick up Palmazime and pancreatic enzymes. They are brought in specially for our kids. Some of them- yeah. You order we like have to give advance notice yeah. to our pharmacy so they can overnight them in so we can just not even miss a dose. And it is, it's, I mean, like the Creon is, we're talking a couple hundred. Abigail's even on two different amounts of Creon. 
So she takes Creon 3000 for snacks and Creon 12,000 for meals. So not only does she take that, but she takes two different dosages. So that's two. And then Pulmazyme, she's on albuterol. She's on sodium chloride. Those are in her inhaled medications. Then you have the vest. Yeah. You know, which I mean, it, if they didn't have assistance programs, I mean, easily, it would be like, I hate to say it, like around like 8,000 a month for just one month's worth of medication. And that's not even talking about the new medications that the modulators that they are coming out with. And our babies are so young and so healthy, really and truly, as um, since cystic fibrosis is a progressive degenerative disease, they tend to be adding treatments and adding medications as they get older. And, um, you know, as our babies grow, the quantities of the medication will increase to reflect the, the size of their body. And so um, we're not just planning for Aiden for college, we're planning for a lifetime of his medication and maybe some lungs and then maybe some college and then maybe um, fertility assistance for when he's an adult. You know, there's like, it's like a lifetime of preparing so that you know your baby's gonna be okay. Because I, I'm believing I'm believing and I am praying and I'm just, I know that we are witnessing miracles in medication. And I know that we are experiencing miracles in medicine and these like brilliant, brilliant doctors and researchers in linked to the foundation and in our kids' care circles that I am believing our babies will have long and healthy and beautiful lives. And that's such a luxury because 20 years ago, 20 years ago, we might not have seen our baby make it to kindergarten, you know? Yeah. I was, um, right now, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is doing research con, which is um, sharing up and coming research and medications and stuff. And I was just in one of the discussions and they are talking about the life expectancy was a couple years ago, mid thirties. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's, that's my age now. Yeah. Like, you know, it's having the tough conversations of down the road of, you know, having to explain to your child what a life expectancy is and that she has one. And then that brings on a whole host of questions of, you know, like I've seen people talk about marriage and not wanting kids because they're not knowing their life expectancy. But then with some of these drugs um, that are in the pipeline and that have just been approved, the life expectancy is now bumped up to like mid 40s. And so it's progressively getting higher and higher and higher. And our prayer is one day they'll outlive us and that we won't have to see that and it's just really a miracle even what they've done in the last you know 10 years with these medications is adding it's literally adding years to our children's life so I'm going to ask a question that y'all may or may not know the answer to 
if at one point they, um, either one of your children need a lung transplant, does that take away the cystic fibrosis diagnosis? Does that change, I guess, the structure of everything and how they live? So it takes away the cystic fibrosis in the lungs. Mm -hmm. They will no longer have that in the lungs. They will still have the GI issues and everything else. There, yeah. there are limitations with transplants, which is why as, yes. as caregivers, it's ideal for us to work so hard at preventative care because someone explained to me once that lung transplants are incredibly difficult because it's actually our only internal organ that's exposed to the external world with every breath we take. And so first, just being able to find a match for lungs is incredibly rare. And um, for them to take and for the body not to reject the lungs. And then the expectancy of, of donor lungs isn't, it's not, a lung transplant isn't going to last you another 50 years. So many people who have had a lung transplant, have another one five years later and another one five years later. And it's definitely um, a beautiful gift to prolonging life expectancy, but it's not, um, it's not a, it's not a cure. It's not, it's not something that, I mean, it definitely will change their life, mm -hmm. but a lot of times they have to have another one, three to five years, I think is yeah. like, the expectancy after you get, you know, the lung transplant. So it's not, and there's a lot of criteria that you have to meet before you're even considered. Yeah. And you then here for like a lifetime to be ready to be a candidate for something like that. Just like, just in the ability to prove that you are doing everything that you can to care for the body that you have so that to show that you're an eligible candidate to care for the gift of another set of lungs. It's our, it's our hope that when our babies are old enough to take some of these new um, medications that are coming out, some of the modulators, that those will really extend the capacity of their lungs before something like that becomes something that they need. You know, we see a lot of young teenagers who have received lung transplants. And I think that that is at least for me, I should only speak for myself on this, but that for me is one of the scary markers along the road that we know cystic fibrosis takes and degenerativeness that um, that's like, man, that's something I want to put off as long as possible because that feels like a scary stop in the road. Like Megan said earlier, who wants to see their baby put under like, man, we just, we want to stay away from that if we can. Yeah. And it's not a guarantee. I mean, it's not a guarantee that they're ever going to find a match. It's not a guarantee that, you know, their body won't reject the lungs. And then, I mean, they could be worse off, you know. So it's hard to even, like, think about it because there are so many things that I don't want to say could go wrong and can go wrong. But, I mean, it's not like oh, they get new lungs and they're healed or, you know. It's a risky procedure that is major, um, just major requirements. And also after a lung transplant, it's not like you have a lung transplant. I, I know that for many people with cystic fibrosis who have had lung transplant, 
the the most instant relief is they feel like they can breathe, which is so awesome. Um, just to feel like they can take a full breath, which really helps with quality of life right away. But then as with any transplant, it's like a solid year, year and a half regimen of isolation and transplant medications and um, like follow-up visits and aftercare that really kind of rules their life on top of their cystic fibrosis treatments where it just turns into this, like the majority of their day is doing the things required so that they can walk from the kitchen to the living room without being exhausted. I saw a really cool thing when we were learning about just cystic fibrosis in general to kind of make other people aware of how it feels like lung wise is to get a straw and breathe through a straw and walk around your house for like five to 10 minutes breathing through that straw. That's what it feels like for a person with cystic fibrosis. Just normal. Is that like labored trying, like you can't get a full breath. It's hard. And that's just a good day. Like that's just all the time. A comparison where it was like a drinking straw, a regular, like a McDonald's cup straw was like a regular day. But then, you know, those little coffee stir straws. Yes being through that was like a bad day and I remember trying it and thinking like I'm gonna pass out and I'm just sitting here sitting here interesting to find a way to feel that to experience that with your child you know and you talked about Megan I I like how we're going to explain to our kids like what a life expectancy is and stuff. And we're preparing now also just like, depending on which route we take our education, Aiden is getting old enough where he's going to understand that other people don't take pills before snack time and other kids get to play until bedtime, but we have to stop an hour and a half early for treatment and just trying to wrap our head around explaining because you know as a society I feel like there's such a stigma that different is wrong and or like different is bad or makes you like not right in some way and we're trying to wrap our head around the way to teach him that different is just different and everyone requires different things for their body to be healthy this is what your body requires to be healthy. And I'm just, I'm not really even sure how I'm going to answer the questions he has because he hasn't had them yet. And right. um, so that's one of the reasons I'm really thankful for this growing community of other parents that we've, we've met through the foundation is I think we all kind of find a parent who has a child who's a little bit older than ours so that we can kind of experience that moment through them first and pass it on which is such a blessing and such a huge not that every child experiences the same thing and not that we choose to parent our children all the same you know everyone's different and fits what's best for their home it's nice to almost have that little warning of like hey, we experienced this, 
this is how we handled it, which either went swimmingly or was an epic fail. And I hope that you have better success. So I just, I, I find that the relationships we have been developing with other parents to be a lifeline. I mean, oh yeah, just like essential to survival <laughs> because mm-hmm. parenting isn't hard enough already for every every mom and dad in the whole world. It's already so hard. The extra things that feel so heavy, it's just nice to have that extra community to help you navigate it so that you feel, feel like, okay, like we can, we can carry on <laughs> to the next phase. Yeah, right. I remember like seeing in one of the groups, cause that was one of the conversations we had to really sit down and talk about this year was whether to send Elijah to pre-K or not. Yeah. And with talking with Abigail's doctors, you know, seeing where Elijah was and just a lot of prayer and conversation between Benjamin and I, we decided to keep Eli home and homeschool him. We now find that conversation going into kindergarten. You know, we feel like we're ready to send him. And that's, again, going to have to be another conversation that we have with Abigail's care team and see what they're thinking. I know it's different for every family and, you know, comfort level and all that as well. But as you were talking about, you know, how to kind of tell them about cystic fibrosis. And I've seen where um, parents bring books to class and read books about cystic fibrosis to the class so the class kind of knows about it. And I think that's a really cute idea. Um, We personally are really vocal Mm -hmm. about Abigail's cystic fibrosis. I mean, we've got a Facebook page. Um, I post stories about her doing her treatments. We try and involve Elijah in every single thing that we do with her like he'll help her you know put on her vest he can squeeze the medicine into her to the nebulizer he helps of course with our supervision helps get her enzymes out and will hand them to her so she can take them so we really try and involve him in it because we want it to be as normal for Abigail as possible we want our friends and family to never, we obviously know that they're going to look or they're going to be curious, especially children, because that's just natural. But we want it to where they just know. We want to be very open about the whole journey. So Abigail feels like she never has to hide it. Now, it will absolutely be her choice when she gets older if she wants to share that information with people with friends but right now we want to make it as normal as possible so she feels like she never has to hide doing a vest treatment with her friends if her friends want to hold the vet you know obviously when she gets older because she's now only almost two but (laughs) you know like if her friends want to hold the vest and see it like we don't want to feel like she ever has to hide that part of her because CF is not Abigail. Abigail has cystic fibrosis. That's just another facet of her life. 
Exactly. But we don't ever want her to feel like it's something that she has to hide or be ashamed of because it makes her unique. It makes her beautiful. It makes her who she is. I think that's my biggest goal as her mother is to make it as comfortable, normal, not a big deal, and just involve everybody as we can. So she never feels like she has to hide that. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about, you know, there's like this big community on social media now of um, like other people with cystic fibrosis or caregivers of people with cystic fibrosis. And there are people all over the spectrum. Megan and I tend to align on a lot of the same things just because, you know, like we just with this click like that, we just have similar family values. And um, so we tend to, I think it's part of why we connect so well too is because a lot of the ways that we choose to raise our children has, um, we have similar values behind it. But um, cystic fibrosis until a person is experiencing strong systems or symptoms is a pretty invisible illness. So there, there's a whole spectrum of people all the way from like, I feel like we both talk really openly about it and really engage our community to people you would never know. Like it's just very silent. Um, there's also a whole range of opinions as far as like what's okay and what's not okay. Like for example, we elected to um, self-quarantine during um, RSV. There's, there's single parents who might not have the luxury of that. There are people who choose to do everything the same way all year round, just depending on their own value system. And even with, even with like treatments, like my husband and I joke about how we're like, we're like hardcore black and white rule followers. Like if our care team says, this is not, this is like probably not a good idea, then we're like hard pass, not on our list of things. Like it's not. And there are also people who will argue the opposite side of the issue, just like anything in life. We all develop and form our own opinions. And so I do think there's value in finding a network of people who, who have the same attitude about it that you do. Um, because there's also Facebook groups for um, the community that I've left because I felt like it was a very negative, like downtrodden look. And we don't choose to operate that way in our family because like you said, having cystic fibrosis does not mean you are cystic fibrosis. It's just you do different things to keep your body healthy. Just like mommy does different things than daddy does and Aiden does different things than mommy and daddy. And that's that's okay. So I'm especially grateful to, when I find a mama or a family who thinks the way that I think, not because you have to, but just because it helps me feel more confident sometimes in the decisions that I'm making. Like when I'm doubting that we should have gone to like a family event for Christmas because my heart wants to be with a big giant party of people, but we chose to keep it small. It helps me when I'm hearing from a mama friend who's like saying, hey, good morning, Merry Christmas. Like here's our party of three or our party of five, you know? Um, so not only finding a place 
in the CF community, but finding people who who have the same kind of I don't know I don't know how to explain it right. Do you get what I'm saying, Megan? Like oh yeah, just like the be- same values, the same kind of outlook on what works best for your family and what you're comfortable with doing. Because some people, I don't want to say are risk takers. Because there are guidelines, you know, that they put out that some things are really strongly advised against. And yet you have those people that are like, oh, no, we've never had a problem with it. So it's fine. That may be fine for your family, but that might not be fine for my family. So when you find that community support where you feel like, you have the same values, you have the same outlook on life and kind of just that support in one another of, yeah, I think you are doing what is right for your family and keep with it. Don't let anybody else tell you that what you're doing for your family is wrong because in your heart, you know that that's what you need to do and that's what you should do. Right. Also, like, just feeling confident, like, say five years down the road from now, my child is, like, refusing to do best or refusing to take his medication. Well, in our house, it's not optional. In our house, it is, like, this is what you do. I can be, like, look, here's Abigail on her iPad doing her best treatment. You all do them together. And I know if he would talk to you or reach out to you as a teenager, you'd be, like, listen, mama knows best you're doing your best before you go to the football game. Like that's, that's all there is to it. And so I'm, I'm extra grateful for people who like make incorporated into their family. And it's just like, this is what you do. So not only the examples that other people will set and support you in how they monitor and do their things, but also that outside, you know, so a family that doesn't have cystic fibrosis in there, you know, being supported by them as well. So that, you know, they're offering that same type of encouragement to you as the family. So we've kind of talked about some future plans and some future things. Um, so let's talk about some immediate things that are facing your, your lives as far as um, education and school. And what does that look like for you to send your child who has cystic fibrosis to school? Y'all talked a little bit about cystic fibrosis and the children can't come together but what if they come in contact with other children? Um, you know, I know that there's infections that, I mean, Megan, you were saying that, you know, um, Abigail caught the infection from her brother. So, you know, what, it, what are some of your thoughts as far as sending your kids to school and, and what does that look like in your future? Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> this is heavy on my heart right now because I feel like the, the clock is like ticking on us, you know, and I talked about how because of Aiden's birthday, we have a little bit of a grace period where, where we don't have, we have a little bit more time, but I honestly, I'm not sure that we will have made up our mind until the first day of pre-K or kindergarten. And it may change every year. It may change by season because my kid is a super social kid. He, he doesn't know strangers. He loves friends. And I want for him to have that community and recess and swapping Twinkies at lunch. Because, you know, like he's going to have the best lunchbox because his diet requires a billion calories. And so he'll have all the good stuff. You know, I want that for him. And the, and let me preface this by saying I'm a huge advocate 
for homeschool. And I'm a huge advocate for alternative learning because I've seen it in my family and in my friends. And I don't think that education is one thing, like just one kind of school. It's not. Education is all avenues that we invest in our children. And so I am hoping and praying for, you know, the world is changing around us because of the, the way the last year and a half has been. And so I'm hopeful that we can find a great compromise with a school district where we can incorporate like a blended curriculum where when there are not all this yuck things like germs and things being passed around where he can be immersed in that community. And maybe maybe we can work out something, you know, lots of people with cystic fibrosis have specific plans with their school. Sometimes they need nap time until they're much older because their bodies are just so tired from fighting what's going on in their body. Sometimes they need longer bathroom breaks because some kids with CF and their digestion troubles, they need to be able to go to the bathroom multiple times a day, even though, you know, a teacher might not let a kid without cystic fibrosis go spend 45 minutes in the bathroom. That might be what they need, you know. Maybe if the flu hits really bad, the school district, we need to pull Aiden and have his curriculum to bring home. Maybe he goes to preschool and he's really sick. We are sick all the time and then we decide to homeschool. I don't think that there is ever going to be a season in our life where we say, we're, we're going to public school from now until graduation. I think we're going to have to evaluate every year, maybe every semester, maybe every quarter. I think we're just going to have to be incredibly open-minded and as our children grow and voice their opinions on what they want versus what their care team says, I think rather than having the mindset of like, it's time for kindergarten, this is the district we're picking, I, th I think part of our normal lifestyle is going to have to be comfortable with the idea that it might be constantly changing and that's okay. Yeah, I have 100% agree. And... I mean, there are IEPs and 504 plans for a reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, working, I think one of the major things that would determine what we would do is how willing the school would be to work with us. If Abigail is not having a great day and she needs some extra sleep, then can she miss the first part of the morning? You know, if she is having an exacerbation or, you know, needs a clean out, you know, can she miss a week of school? Can we have somebody come to us if she's in the hospital? You know, can she go somewhere and have her extra snack? And will she have to self-administer her medicine? Will there be somebody to administer it for her? I mean, there are just a lot of questions that I I don't know the answer to yet because we're not exactly there but then there's also the question of is there a possibility of another student with cystic fibrosis and if there is what protocols can we put in place so that they 
don't have to cross paths because I've seen this in multiple mom groups of they even map down to different routes in the school. So they never have to even cross paths. They have all separate supplies. They never share the same lunchroom. I mean, it's not. It's so unique to cystic fibrosis too, because un- like with HIPAA laws and all, like medical disclosure legalities, there are so many different things that you would never talk about with anyone except for your teacher and your school administrator. But it's when you're entering a public place like that, especially with kids who are still learning how to manage their medication on their own, you have to be really upfront and straightforward because if you're gonna, if you're in a huge school district. There's a huge opportunity for other families with cystic fibrosis to be sitting next to your kid in math class and you would never know. I mean, we live in a smaller community and so we're pretty aware, but still you don't know every human who's entering kindergarten. We have also talked about the possibility of like homeschool and there's so many amazing co-ops now where your kid can go for like arts and athletics and um just social interaction and field trips and it's so it's amazing to me the opportunities that there are through these other programs we just have some hard decisions to be making over the next year and whatever we try I think we'll go in with the understanding that this is what we're going to try and if it doesn't work out here's plan b and c and like Megan said we're going to run it by his his care team and we're not just parenting him as his parent. His care team is very much like, you wouldn't probably normally ask your, I hate to use the word normally because that's not true, but a person with without some kind of genetic anomaly might not, they would just decide what they wanted to do for school. But we bring in lots of other opinions on purpose because we're not the most educated people on cystic fibrosis. His like, world-renowned pulmonologist is the expert and whatever his care team says is like that's a good or bad idea that's really what what we need to consider as well I will also add to that I never in a million years would have thought I would have been a homeschool mom that was never in the plan for me it was I you know, before Benjamin and I even got married, it was, you know, when we had kids, it was, I would work like part-time so I could be there to take them to school. And then thereafter, you know, like when they got home and then when they got older and stuff, we would, you know, look at if I wanted to do something else, but like never in a million years would I have thought that I would have been homeschooling my son. And I love it. I absolutely love it but I'm very lucky because he also loves it. Mm-hmm. He loves to learn. He asked to do school. So that makes a huge difference with Abigail. I don't know if we could get through one lesson together because we would butt heads, I think. But it's just really assessing what is going on at that time with Abigail, what's going on in our community, as to like flu, RSV, what are the risks? And I think we would just really have to take that into account. And I think we would also have to take it into account for Elijah. 
and what would be the risk of, you know, him being in school? Well, I just think that you have handled it with such grace, like taking into account both of your children. It's just something I really admire because um, every child is different and every experience is different. And the... I think that I just I'm so impressed with how you balance both and how you take into account both and how they affect each other and treat them uniquely as their own person. I just think that that's really awesome how you do that. I mean, that's just really our goal is to not because I think with cystic fibrosis, it can be time consuming. And if you let it, it can really consume all aspects of your life. Your whole family. So, right. And so I think with us trying to involve Elijah as much as we can, then it's a whole, it's a family thing. It's not just an Abigail thing where, hey, Eli, you go like watch TV, play your iPad. I got to deal with your sister for the hour that we do treatments in the morning and the hour and a half that we do treatments at night. Like you're on your own, bud. We can't do that. Right. And so, yeah, we, we have to involve him. And then also it doesn't make Abigail feel like she's taking away time from family. Like it's, she Mm -hmm. is, we're all inclusive. So it's, she's never left on her own to do her medicines. He's never left alone because we have to do her medicines. And I just think that's really important because I don't want any resentment you know, when they get older and stuff. Okay. So Heather, when you guys first went home from the hospital, y'all put together a website and and I think it was a Facebook page and y'all did a lot of education. And one of the education pieces that I really remember was something about a number. Um, So if you see posts on Facebook or um, like social media where you see hashtag 65 roses, um, 65 roses is something really embraced by the cystic fibrosis community. The story goes that this came about because of a little boy who had cystic fibrosis and he, his mom was a huge advocate and a huge fundraiser and um, he would listen to her calling people and talking about it and fundraising and um, he said something like, oh mama, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about 65 roses, meaning like he couldn't say cystic fibrosis. Um, And so you'll see a purple rose or a purple ribbon and 65 roses attached to um, a lot of material about cystic fibrosis. And it's just a story that really warms my heart because, you know, all of us who have had toddlers and listened to them say weird and quirky and funny things. And um, I, I just, I just love that story. And I'm sure that I'm sure that we will all hear our children talk about cystic fibrosis with weird and interesting and different words. And I just think it's such an endearing story. It's so true. I mean, like Elijah knows that Abigail has cystic fibrosis, but when he says it, it seriously sounds like 65 roses. I mean, I love it is so true. And it's such a sweet story, you know, about mom, a mom advocating and raising awareness. And that's just the goal, I think, for all of us moms. Well, is there anything else y'all want to highlight, touch on, 
um, just kind of share with uh, the community of people who may or may not know anything about cystic fibrosis? Even though our children are experiencing this, and even though their path to a healthy lifestyle is different than what um, other people's normal might look like, they are still, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm biased because I think my kid is so stinking tough. Like, I think that even though this is something he experiences, Aiden is not sick. He's not, he's not laying in bed all day. I mean, he would love to lay in bed and watch cartoons, don't get me wrong, but he is not unable to do life because of cystic fibrosis. If anything, I think he is feistier and tougher and just like so extraordinarily resilient because he's experienced all of these things at such a young age and he does it, he doesn't care. Like it doesn't matter to him. It's just like part of his day, you know? So I think I think there's sometimes a stigma about people who have what might be classified as a terminal illness or genetic anomaly uh, that they're like sick and they can't do things or can't can't participate in the world around them but if anything I think that we try to live life extra big. Um, I also want to speak to any any mamas who have a child diagnosed with cystic fibrosis or really any kind of any kind of diagnosis that has caused them trauma. One of the hardest things for me to embrace as a mama was that grief over expectations can hit you at any time. I remember planning this huge, well I do this every year truthfully, birthdays are a really big deal. Birthdays for someone with cystic fibrosis are an extra big deal because it's it's just a celebration of them beating the odds that were stacked against them. And I remember almost every birthday party planning this huge big celebration. And then when everyone comes together to celebrate, something in me just deflates and I grieve that the struggle of the year and how that bittersweet just hits me every year at his birthday. And I know for every mama who's experienced something like this, it's different, it's different for everyone. And for some reason for me, it's at his birthday where it's like, I don't even realize the anxiousness and the stress of it and the weight I carry sometimes is inside me until it falls out at usually an embarrassing and like, un, like a bad moment, you know, or, or like, when you're at the grocery store and you're trying to decide which kind of creamer has more calories in it to feed your baby who is not gaining weight and you'd have like a weeping moment by the vanilla creamer. I just, I just want to speak to mamas that, that that is nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed by or to try and put away inside of yourself that you're, you're doing big, amazing, awesome things. Like I didn't go to med school. Megan, you didn't go to med school. It's not our job to know how to count the granules inside of a capsule for the right amount of proteins. But now it is because we're mamas of these extraordinary, amazing human beings. And to other moms or dads or caregivers, like that makes you exceptional. So you get 
to be unapologetic about the emotional ride that that takes you on in your journey to being exceptional and raising exceptional human beings because I just I just want you to know how tough you are. Megan, what about you? Anything? I don't even know where to start. I mean, there's so much on my heart about this and I'm so passionate about this because I really just want Abigail to feel safe in it and feel like she's not alone in this fight and feel like what her normal is may not look like other kids' normals, but it's our normal, and that's perfect for our family, and I never want her to feel like she has to hide it, and this goes across the board to any parent of a child with a special need or anything like that, is you're your child's biggest advocate especially right now when Abigail can't talk and cannot speak up for herself, it is my job to do that for her. With cystic fibrosis, there are over 1,700 different mutations. And even though a child might have this same mutation, it can look different for every single child. So why Abigail right now looks completely healthy and is spunky and feisty and will stomp her foot to let me know exactly what she wants. I can't see what is going on inside of her body and that we have to give grace to those who might look healthy but inside might be fighting something not just assume that because she looks perfectly normal and perfect, perfectly healthy that she's not struggling. And I have to sometimes remember that and kind of not proceed with caution, but just give her a little bit extra grace. Maybe that's why her middle name is Grace. <laughs> but that it's just so different for every single person and that it is my job as her mom to be her voice and to advocate and raise awareness because I didn't know about it when I had her. And I know that there is gonna be another family out there that gets this diagnosis and feels the shock that we felt and the emotional roller coaster of anger and scared and sadness and grieving what you thought your child childhood would look like in hearing disability and life expectancy and really grieving that and that that's okay. It's normal and you are not alone. And like Heather said, when it just hits you, you know, when you're standing there, I mean, I completely had to retrain my brain that adding oil into my daughter's bottle to make her gain weight was what she needed to add salt, a high sodium diet, a high fat diet, add butter, cheese, heavy whipping cream, all that stuff into her foods because that's what she needs. And it goes against everything that I was raised because you hear that that is not good for you and you need to limit it. And just knowing that you're not alone in that fight and that 
it's okay to have hard days. I remember when we learned that we were going to have to be in quarantine and Abigail wouldn't get that typical picture with Santa. I was devastated because that was one of my favorite things to do with Elijah was take him to get his picture with Santa. And in comes my dad in a Santa costume and he is now Santa Pops and we get that Santa picture. So adapt, adjust, make it your normal, what works for your family. And that is exactly perfect. It doesn't have to look like anybody else because what works for your family is what you need it to be. And that's perfect. And you always have support in us. We will always be there for you to love you and lift you up when you feel like you can't get up. Yeah, 100% agree. Like sometimes you just have to be creative and that can be, you. it can be a bummer or it can be twice as awesome as what your expectation was. Like, uh, I love that you have Santa Pops. Like we have a private trick-or-treat for Aiden. I have the same eight houses we go to every year the day before Halloween. Like you just have to adjust your expectations for being like what the world expects to being like what you decided and that's okay. And I think one of the things that as I was sitting in the hospital learning about Abigail's diagnosis and really trying to make the conscious decision of okay I can sit here and of course I have every single right to be upset and to be mad and to ask why but that's not going to fix it. That's not going to fix Abigail. I can sit here and I can be angry and I cannot accept this diagnosis. And I can say, no, that's not what she has. You're wrong. Or I can be sad, but none of that is going to change what she has and what we need to do for her. So while I allow myself to have those moments, of grief and sadness and mourn what I thought our life would look like. I also, on the other hand, have to buck up and say, you know what, that's not going to change it. So instead, I'm going to take an optimistic approach to it and say, this is what we have and we are going to rock it. We're going to make this the best thing that we can because this is what we were given. And so we are going to make it everything that we can, include everybody we can, tell everybody we can, and just deal with it because it's not going to change. And we love her the way she is. Exactly. So I think both of you did a very nice job of summarizing basically the title of this um, podcast, which is We Saved You a Seat. And I think both of you have clearly opened the door for um, it, not only someone with a child with who has cystic fibrosis, but um, any other family who may be experiencing some kind of just a tough time or or a diagnosis or like you said, a life-limiting uh, diagnosis that that is scary for them. You guys have clearly saved a seat for them. So I can't thank you enough for being here today. And uh, we got a lot of wonderful information from you. And I have a feeling, again, we will be bringing y'all back to the podcast at some point to uh, educate us even more. So thank you both so much for being here on this. Thank you for inviting us. I loved it. Thank y'all. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.